this morning, we get a chance to dive into a brand new, new series, and what it's going to be focused on is our mission as a church. And so some language we introduced uh, last year around th- this time, some sort of new language around our mission, it's always been about pointing our community to Jesus. So if you hear nothing else this, this morning, no, we love Jesus, we worship Jesus, we're thankful to Jesus, Jesus is Everything. That's what we're going to talk about. We're excited about Jesus. We sing songs to Jesus. We're thankful for Jesus. All right. So a lot of Jesus. We love Jesus. All right? Pointing our community to him. And what we're praying then as we do that, there'd be these sort of results that we would see happening. Not only here in this church community, but they would spread out and that more people might know God, have a relationship with God, not just so much intellectual information about God, and I'll unpack that more this morning, that people might actually find true freedom, not freedom the way the culture talks about it, but a freedom that is found only in a glad submission to Jesus Christ, that we would experience belonging. There's so much isolation and loneliness, despite all the social media friends and followers you might have and your neighbors might have. There is an isolation that exists, and we have an opportunity to help people experience a real sense of belonging, and then an invitation to be about the work of seeking renewal, that we exist for the welfare, for the good of our community. You're not called to live for yourself. I'm not called to live for myself. We're not called to be a church just for ourselves, but to seek the renewal of our communities, that God has given us a mission. So if you ever struggle with like, what's my purpose in life, and maybe sometimes feeling like some of the things in your life that you might not be as excited about, just know this, there's an overall mission that you have been given and we have been given collectively. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is sort of unpack this mission statement, all centered around the person and work of Jesus, how it's only through him that we can experience these things. But I want to just press into this, because here's what I know and what I feel and what I sense like in my own life, and I'm guessing maybe you do as well, is that there can come a drift sometimes, there can be a weariness, a fatigue that sets in, all right? We got to celebrate several months ago just a 10-year mark as a church, we're so thankful for that, but I also know it's possible to drift away from the mission that we're called to. So what would it look like to recover the purpose of the church? What are we here for? Why did we even start this church? What are we hoping that we, by God's grace, will be about? There's a great summary. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages in the book of Luke. And Luke 19, 10 says this, for the Son of Man. So if we're supposed to be imitators of Jesus, well, how does Jesus identify himself? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There's a pursuit that God has, this relentless pursuit to see more people brought into the family, brought into the celebration, as we'll look at in the passage here together this morning. So I want to ask us as a church, as we sort of get into this this series, all right, what does that look like in your life? What does it look like in my life? How are we collectively seeking to be the church? Does this, do we embody this? Maybe a way to think about it is this. Are you sort of casually sort of browsing through life or intentionally seeking? So here's what I mean. I'll kind of give you as real time of example as I possibly can, all right? There is casual browsing. Maybe you've been at a store before and you're just trying to kill some time and say, hey, can I help you? And it's like, no, I'm just sort of browsing, just sort of looking, right? Um, over the past few months, my wife and I have had a conversation at a very casual level of looking out in our driveway and saying, hey, you know that minivan that we have? Um, it's, we've been driving it for over 10 years now. Probably in the next year or two, all right, unless there's some miracle that takes place, right, we're going to need to figure out something else. Like, it can't go on forever, right? As hip and as cool as it is, it won't last forever, right? And so, very casually, over the past few months, 
at times, or maybe I'm just distracted, I'm just gonna hop online, I have very casually searched for, ooh, I wonder what kind of new car we would buy. I wonder what thing we would get. Probably not get another van, even though, that, you know. Uh, but like, what are we going to do? And it's been very, very casual. Now, Thursday, things took a turn. Um, Thursday, my wife, some of you know this story, some of you might have seen us on Lake Mott this past week. She was at a stop coming back from open house for school for our younger daughter, McKinley, on Lake Mott, at a stop and got slammed into in the back. Everybody's okay, thankfully, all right? Um, Not only did it crush the back of the van, it pushed the van up into the truck in front of it, and then that truck went ahead and hit another car. So it was a fairly big sort of impact. Within 24 hours, our insurance company called and said, hey, that van, we're not gonna fix it. I'm like, are you kidding me, right? Um, fluid's leaking out, it's crushed, and but what do you mean? This is a great vehicle. So we get the word that, it, that it's totaled. So we went over the last couple days from casually browsing sort of mindset to now there is something urgent that needs to be figured out, all right? It went from casual browsing to sort of this intentional seeking. We have to figure out something. Now, I say that, a couple of things, if we think about it as, yes, it's, you know, it's, it's a first world problem and it's the stuff to kind of figure out and yes, it's some urgency to it. But there is an urgency as we look out and whether, it may not look like a wreck on the side of the road, but there are people who are trying to find a joy and a satisfaction in this life, in this world under the sun here as we looked at in the book of Ecclesiastes that we just finished. And if you could kind of peer into their soul, what you would find is there's a wreck, that there is difficulty, there's strain, there's anxiety, there's this, man, is this all there is to this world? And our opportunity as the church is not to casually browse around the neighborhood and sort of just, you know, have a conversation here and now every so often, but to intentionally seek, as Jesus did, to seek and to save the lost. Now, we don't save anybody, but we point them to what? Point them to Jesus. Again, we love Jesus. Jesus is what it's all about. And so I have to ask myself, have I been more casually browsing or intentionally seeking, building relationships? So a lot of this series is going to be about this idea. And an unrelated aside, um, because the car is gone, I'm just going to milk this illustration for all it's worth, right? Um, maybe you've done this. I didn't shop for a car in over a decade, right? But I filled out a couple forms online. I kid you not, like within moments, I'm not even talking minutes, moments, my phone was blowing up, salespeople calling, we've got this, can you come in? I was just expecting to like just just like appear in our living room, right? It was like, wow, like I don't even know who's texting me anymore, all right? So if my phone starts blowing up in the service, apparently there's a car waiting for us, right? But I look at that and I'm like, man, if I could even, what if we as the church could even just capture like just a tiny little bit of that, that, that sort of like, hey, we're, we're here to help. Like we're, we're here to help solve this sort of solution or problem. I know they're trying to sell something, right? And I don't mean it in that sense, but this sort of urgency, do we have that? Casually browsing or intentionally seeking. In Luke 15, we're going to look at the story of the the prodigal son in a moment. This great parable, but it's part of a series of three parables. And the first one begins this way. In Luke 15, verses 3 to 7, as this crowd gathers, and we'll talk about that crowd more in a moment. It says, Jesus told them this parable. It says this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see the heart of God. There's a ton of things we could unpack in here. I've got a whole other passage I need to preach, but just look at that for a moment, right? The pursuit after the one that is lost. A willingness to leave some comfort, a willingness to engage, a willingness to pursue that we follow after people because God has pursued us. He's followed after us. He sent his son for us. And so over the next few weeks, let's explore that together. What does it look like to be the church recovered? And with that, as we unpack our sort of mission as a church, you can see it, maybe it's a little small on the screen there, but four practices for a faithful presence. We are called to be a presence in the absences of the world that the world experiences in the culture. So here's what this is going to look like. Each week we'll take an aspect of our mission statement. This morning we're going to look at what does it look like to know God. But corresponding to this is an invitation to recover something. And so this morning we're going to be looking at recovering our confession. And though that might include like confession of sin, what it means is our belief. We sang a song just a few moments ago, right? Sort of singing through the Apostles' Creed. Like there's this confession, this declaration. What is it that we believe about God, about humanity, about the church? Ultimately, what is it that Christians believe when we talk about the gospel? The gospel is central to everything. And so we're going to look at recovering our confession. Next week we'll look at finding freedom and so on and so forth. So this morning, let's look at this desire that we have for people to know God. Again, not so they would win Bible trivia, but so that they might be in a relationship with God. It's relational, intimate sort of language that's being used here. Go read John 17, 3. Like, this is eternal life that they know God. It's Jesus is one of his final prayers here on earth for his disciples and for those that would come after that we might know God, that we might experience him. And in order to do that, we have to make sure that we are centered on the right things. So the practice, we make sure we wanna always be looking at to recover because it is lost so often, is recovering our confession. Recover the gospel. Don't lose sight of the gospel. Don't get bored of the gospel. Don't move on from the gospel. Don't think, well, that's for the person, yeah, that their life is a wreck and they need to meet Jesus and then after that, they kinda, they kinda clean themselves up or kinda, just kinda pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No, 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 none of that. It's all about Jesus. Martin Luther, in his very aggressive way that he would speak, if you're familiar with this old reformer, said it this way about the gospel, and he used this very aggressive imagery. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. We've got to make sure we get this right, all right? Everything hinges on this. Most necessary it is that we know this article, that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually, all right, so this hammer imagery. Now, I don't suggest after the service you grab a hammer and walk to your next door neighbor's house. I need to tell you about Jesus, right? But that imagery there of it's constant, it is because we are prone to forget. And it's not just others. My own heart. I'm guessing your own heart because you're a human being. And so our propensity, even as followers of Jesus, is to drift away from the gospel. As we'll see in this text, to drift to become more like the older brother in the parable that we're going to look at. To miss the gospel, to maybe clean up our external kind of behavior and get into a lot of behavior modification, but miss the heart of Jesus, to miss the heart of God. And so there's this call 
in everything that we do from this service this morning, as you get connected to a group, if you're wondering what's a group gonna be like, it's an opportunity to pound the gospel into your head, into my head, into our heart continually. So it might actually sink in. And I need that reminder all the time. The anxiety you feel, the solution to that is not a bunch of self-help books or things. It is to know the love of Christ, the peace that, that he brings. You got anger in your life. The solution to that is to know that God has provided for you. This it's sense of entitlement. We'll get into all the, these things. We have to pound the gospel. So if you would, that's the introduction to all this. Turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at this third parable in the 15th chapter, Gospel of Luke. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, there's some paperback ones on those back tables. Get up, grab one of those, or you can get your phone out, go to cpwp.life. The second card as you swipe over says message notes. The text will be listed there. Many of the slides and things will be up. Uh, that text will be listed there as well. There's space for you to actually take notes. If you're using one of the Bibles here, that can be found on page 969. So I'm going to read this in its entirety, and then we will make our way back through this particular parable, this teaching, this story of Jesus. But if you're able, would you do this as I read God's word? Would you stand as I read God's word this morning? The parable of the prodigal son, it's called. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, he had took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But... When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25, we get introduced to the other brother. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. This is an epic party, all right? The windows are shaking. You can hear it from blocks away. Like what in the world is happening? He hears the music and dancing, all right? And he called one of his servants and asked what, do these things, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, so I want to look at this very 
well-known. I'm guessing many of you have heard this this parable, you're familiar with it, this idea of a prodigal one who kind of goes, the idea there is like just spends everything recklessly, all right? Not good at saving, just spends it, um, just kind of just destroys all the things that, that he has, all the gifts that he's been given and just spends it recklessly. And what we see here, what I wanna look at as we unpack this is there's a depiction here, Jesus, all right, as he's telling this story, he's telling it to people that it says there were, early on in the chapter, we're told that there's, there's tax collectors, there's sinners. Those are kind of those that everyone culturally regards as, man, those people are messed up. We don't like them. We want to stay away from them. They're doing the, the wrong thing. So those people were gathering increasingly. There was something compelling about Jesus. Like, we want to hear more. And also, there's increasingly more, the scriptures say, Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, the people that seemingly kind of had everything put together. And they're also gathering to follow Jesus but not so much out of worship of Jesus, but like they're trying to figure, certainly trying to figure him out, but they're not pleased with him. We're gonna see that eventually in the story, like it's them that want to see Jesus put to death and they make plans to do that. But what this parable does, amongst many things it does, is it gives us a contrast of what it looks like to be spiritually lost, to be alienated from the father. And it's in this contrast between a younger brother, all right, and an older brother, or the younger son and the older son. And so let's look first at this younger brother. Maybe a way to think about him, all right, as we put it in kind of maybe some language for today. Um, there is a popular notion today. It is all around. It is the, the air we breathe. It is the water that we swim in. Whether you would give this language to it or not, it is all around. Just your, pray your eyes are open to see this, but this call to the sort of expressive individualism, like you do you, you be you, whatever you want to make of, of your life, that should be celebrated, all right, or sort of the idea of the authentic self, that is the ultimate thing to pursue, all right? You just go and do what you want. Don't let anybody tell you what to do, all right? That's even what we'll get into next week, a bit of the view of culturally what free Freedom is, right? There's no restraint. You just be true to yourself. And the younger brother, I say in many ways, fits that if we're going to use some of the language from today. And so he sets off on this journey, right? And what preceded that journey is he goes to his father, all right? And he says, Father, give me the share of the property. Give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, are you tracking with what the, this means? What he is saying to his dad is this. I know you've got a lot of money. I know you've got a lot of land. I know you've got a lot of resources, all right? And the moment you die, old man, like I'm going to get, as, as the younger, he would have gotten a third of the family inheritance, all right? The older brother would have gotten two-thirds. He would have gotten a third of it. But he doesn't want to wait. I don't think he's got a great relationship with his dad. Father's Day was probably awkward, right? Um, and in this moment, he is communicating to his father, I just wish you'd die. I really wish you were dead because then I could have your stuff and I could go do what I want. The authentic self. I'm going to go be me. Can you just let me do that? I'm sick of living under your rules, your restrictions, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so he says to his father, father, just give me the share of the property, all right? And amazingly, as the story goes, all right, he says, all right. So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And so this property that he's given, obviously he doesn't steward it well. And the language here, it's really fascinating. When he says, give me the property, there's a particular Greek word that, that's used. We don't need to get into necessarily all of that. But when it tells us that the father then gave him his property, there's a shift in the language. Even though it's translated both as property, 
when it's used about what the Father is communicating to him, it's the word bios, sort of this idea of, of life, of living, right? That, that sort of reference. And it's a way that God, through his servant Luke, as this is being recorded, as Jesus is telling the story, it's the willingness of the Father to say, look, I literally, I give you all that I have. It might have probably resulted, they didn't, it wasn't like they carried a lot of cash. It wasn't like, well, here's the credit card, just have, have fun, you get the new Apple card, yeah, go, go do it, right? Um, he's saying to him probably, all right, I will sell off some of the land. And land was hugely important. It was passed down. You didn't want to lose the family land, your identity, your very life, the lifeblood, who you are was tied so closely to that. And so it's this deep expression here. It's not just like I just take some cash and run, but it's like, like who I am in the community, my standing as sort of this patriarch, all of this is bound up in it. And he's like, my son, I give that to you. So he leaves with that. A bit of the father's life has been given to the son, and it tells us that he squanders it in reckless living. And then to make matters worse, as he's becoming more destitute, there's a famine that's in the land, and it tells us that he is such, in such dire straits that he has to go. And think about this. This is a story told to Jewish people. So this is a Jewish man, this Jewish younger brother, who has to go work for a Gentile and is told to go work amongst the pigs. It was an absolute abomination. You couldn't get any lower, all right? This would, some of you are like, dude, I got a bad job. No, no, this was the worst job you could possibly have. And he's so hungry, he's looking at what's being fed to the pigs and he's longing, but no one will even give him that. And so he's just starving. And so a way to think about this is his hunger certainly is revealed at a kind of a physical level, certainly. But there's something deeper that Jesus is communicating. It's something deeper that the scriptures are communicating all throughout is that there's this hunger, this, this longing for us to be brought home. The feast that he gets invited into in just a few short verses, like that's what you and I are made for. If we read the opening chapters of the Bible, we see man and woman placed in the garden walking with God, right? That there's this perfect, harmonious relationship, all as God intended it to be. And then because of sin, because we say, hey, I want to express my individualism. I want to, I'm an authentic self. I don't want to live under the restraints of this God. I will reach for the fruit. I'll take matters into my, my own hands. Everything spirals and becomes chaotic and it unravels. And yet there's this longing to get back to Eden, to get back to that, to get back to the family, to get back to the relationship, to get back to the harmony, all of those things. And his hunger is revealed here. Yes, physically, but it's revealing something deeper. As he's made for communion with his father. C.S. Lewis would say it this way in Mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. And the younger brother, the younger son, had had a lot of experience. He spent a lot of money experiencing things. Maybe this has been your story. You spent lots of time, or you know people that have spent lots of time, energy, resources on all the experiences. And at the end of the day, you're like, well, did it really satisfy the most probable explanation, Lewis says, is that I was actually made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, the real thing that we're made for. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. So in the younger brother, he goes off to another country, but he's meant to be in the Father's presence. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. It's that idea, again, I think of a Martin Luther just like beating into our heads our purpose, how the gospel is what 
allows us to be in a relationship, to be back home. So verse 17 begins this way. It says, but when he came to himself. So he has this realization like, okay, I'm going to go back. And so he gets a speech together. You, you maybe you're familiar with this. You, you read it there in the text a moment ago. And he's like, I'm going to confess my father. I'm going to say, I got this plan. I'm going to put it together. Like, I'm going to tell him, listen, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I don't have an inheritance anymore. I get that. Can I just have a job? Can I just be one of your servants? So he heads out. Now, look at the compassion of the father, the one who moves toward us. Verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, it's like his father says, saw him and felt compassion. You have to wonder, was the father day by day going and just looking off into the distance, wondering would his son come down that long driveway? Would he actually return? You have to imagine the amount of times he, he prayed for that to happen. And his, the nights he stayed up worrying about this younger son of his, the one that he loved, who had actually who had basically told him as a dad, like, I wish you were dead, but he still loved and cared for him. And then he sees him. Imagine that. And it says the father saw him, and rather than anger, oh boy, I'm going to give it to that guy, right? He says he felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him, all right? This is unheard of. For an elder kind of statesman in the culture, the patriarch of the family, to kind of like lift up his clothes, the, the garments that he had been wearing, and to sprint towards his son was completely undignified. You just don't do that. The language here is he throws himself upon the neck of his son and begins to just kiss him and embrace him and cry over him and welcome him. He is so glad his boy has come home. That's the picture the compassion of the Father. Is that how you picture God? Maybe in your best moments you think of him that, that way when you feel like you're doing well, but what about in your worst moments? What about when you're acting like the younger brother? When, when you think back even in the times in your life where you were the younger brother and God has brought you out of that, but there's still this, this shame maybe that you carry and you're just like, I, I don't know, I don't wanna, wanna go there. And you have to picture this God who runs towards you, he moves towards you, he lavishes you with kisses and hugs and a welcome. And then it tells us it goes beyond just that moment. It's not like, all right, cool, um, I'll make you a servant. He's like, no, no. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you, da, 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 not worthy to be called your son. And the father just didn't have any of it. Cuts him off, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf. He's like, this is a big, big deal. You didn't kill the fattened calf for just anything. Many people will go through their whole life and they wouldn't even get that experience. And so he's got this thing. He's been waiting for this sort of like some sort of epic party, all right? Like some momentous occasion. Today's the day. Let's kill the fattened calf, right? We're not heating up hot dogs in the microwave. We're killing the fattened calf, right? This is how it's going to go. And so all this transpires. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, not my servant, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That is the picture of our God. The lavish, the, the, the prodigal nature of our God, meaning the sort of relentless, lavish, if we could say reckless in the best possible way, God, as he pursues. But this also exposes the older brother. So there's the lostness of the younger brother, which is easy to kind of see, all right? That he's off, he's spending everything, he's living this very licentious way, he's just doing whatever feels good to him. It's what we probably easily identify sort of externally, just kind of um, sinful behavior. But now we see the older brother. And the older brother can be defined as one who has always seemingly done the right thing. He's at home. He's not like the younger brother. 
all right? He's got his stuff together. He is dutiful. He is obeying. He is moral. It's not like that immoral younger brother. And so look with me at verses 25 then to 32. Now this older son was in the field, came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. That's some, some, you know, like I said, that's a pretty big party. You're hearing the music and the dancing, all right? I don't know if they were good at dancing, but apparently it was loud, all right? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. What's his response? He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Again, the pursuit of the father. Do you see that? The father goes to him. He entreats him. He's like, come into the party. But his response is, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting. We had to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So we see this picture of the brother. One of the things we have to ask, one of the things we need to see, and I may mention to you a few moments ago, if you go back and read the opening verses of chapter 15, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Because to eat with somebody in that culture was a sign even of acceptance. You didn't just eat with anybody. And so the rumors are flying. There's, they're like, what in the world? Like, they're really ticked off at Jesus. He's breaking all the social norms. He's not being obedient yet. He seems to really know the Bible very well, so they don't know what category to put him in. And so what we see here is there's a calling out of the Pharisees. But we also need to see this, and this is where I think it gets really beautiful, it gets really painful, redemptively painful. It's not just calling out the Pharisees, it's calling out you, it's calling out me. Because I think too often we drift, regardless of what your story was of coming to Christ, if you were like, hey, I was definitely the younger brother. But at some point, what can creep in is this older brother sort of mentality. I'm doing the right thing. I've got this. Begin to look down your nose at other people, this sort of self-righteousness. We get a little puffed up. And in reading and studying in this, one of the things I came across, and it was just very convicting, it was like, because I, I don't want to believe that. I'm like, no, no, I'm not the older brother here. I'm the one that likes Jesus, right? That's me. So yeah, let's critique. Let me be self-righteous towards the self-righteousness of the older brother. That's how bad it is, actually. So let me look at this and realize that one of the ways maybe we can see if we are the older brother is, is our church filled with a lot of younger brothers? And if it's not, it's worth us looking and saying, man, is there an older brother mentality that exists in us that is a bit off-putting to those that are actually looking for something? They're looking for some rescue and we don't maybe want anything to do with them because it's messy and it's difficult and I like kind of thinking of myself as a pretty good person. And I, that's, that's between you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to work. I, I don't know, but it, it should give us some pause and to stop and to be thinking through, like, is it just calling out the Pharisees here? Or is it also calling out the Pharisee that exists in my own heart? And so let's explore this for a moment. Like, how would you and I, I think there's some keys here in the text. So there's probably a whole length of things we could talk through, but maybe a few diagnostic sort of questions to think through. How do you know if you're a religiously lost older brother? 
No one's knocking him religious on his religion, right? Like this is a guy that probably has a perfect church attendance award and dominated in Sunday school, memorized the verses, knew, you know, could find a book of the Bible faster than anybody, right? Um, like this is a guy that kind of had his stuff together. So let's look at some of the description that we get here in chapter 15 and some of his response. We see right away that he's angry. So ask yourself, does this describe you? Are you angry? Are you bitter? joyless, meaning this, you had plans for your life, all right? You had a way, you pictured things going, and when it doesn't start to go that way, what begins to creep in is not a, Lord, well, just your will be done, and, and I'm here to serve you, and you've been so gracious to me, or is there this, which is often the case in my life, there's this anger, come on, what, God, really, like this? Well, we just had this hard thing, now there's this other thing, Right, I could deal with the one, but now there's a series of things maybe that, that are happening. You begin to get angry, bitter, you're joyless. That's the older brother. That's his disposition there. I mean, it tells us right there in the text his immediate response, but he was angry, verse 28. He refused to go in. He's like, I'm not going to party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. Now look at this. There's a contempt here. Look. The disrespect here towards his father. Look, these many years I have served you. Are you feeling superior? He's calling out to his father, his record. I've done the right thing. I've served you. The language here is I have slaved for you. I've done everything you ask. How dare you do this and reward the younger brother who did all the wrong things? He got a third of the inheritance and now he gets a party in the fattened calf. Are you kidding me? He's feeling superior, he's feeling puffed up, he's looking down, which the other side of this coin, closely related, is then, do you have an unforgiving spirit? He doesn't welcome the younger brother. He's not happy to see him. He's like, it might be that even part of his identity, maybe this has been your case, is like, hey, here's this younger brother, and he was always the screw up, he was always the misfit, he was always doing that, and the older brother found his identity somewhat in the younger brother always screwing up, and he could be the one that was doing the right thing. But now the younger brother's starting to turn things around in his life, he might not even know who he is in the world anymore, because he's like, I was always living in comparison to this other person, to this younger brother. He doesn't offer forgiveness, he's very disoriented in this. And he tells us, I've slaved for you. Now there's a call to obedience, but there's a call to obedience out of a delight in who God is and, and being able to obey him and a joy that is found in there. But that's not the case for this one. You know you're slipping into the religious older brother mindset when it's all sort of this slavish duty. You're doing the right thing. But there is, there is no joy. There is no communion with, with God. It's solely out of duty. It has nothing to do with delighting in the Father, of honoring him. He's doing it. Why? So at the end, when his old man dies, he can take his stuff. It's no different than the younger brother. The younger brother just said, I had, like it a little earlier. They are both alienated from the father. They both want their father's stuff without the father. They don't care about a relationship. It's like, just give me mine. And then he says this. He's like, I've never, you never even offered me a young goat, all right? Now, I know that's not a phrase we tend to use, right? My kids have never, you didn't even give me a young goat. But, it, but the idea here is... There's an insecurity in his relationship. It's like he got the fattened calf and he believes somehow that the father has held out on him. Like you wouldn't even give me that. There's an insecurity in his standing with God. Do you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen, here's the reality. 
we can all drift towards older brotherness, right? I'm not saying we're all older brothers, elder brothers, but there's this drift that can take place. We begin to get puffed up. And one of the things that we pray the Holy Spirit reveals is even just an insecurity that you have in your relationship with God. Are you worn out from trying to prove and trying to pretend and act like you have it all together? Do you, do you worry that God actually does love you and care for you? Worrying is it going to strike you down at any moment? Does it run through your mind of like, well, maybe I need to pray that, you know, sinner's prayer one more time, right? Like, did it really work? Did it click that time? Did God hear? Maybe he was out. Maybe he was busy, right? Like, there can be, like, I think this older brother really struggles. He doesn't have any sort of assurance. And when you have no sort of rock-solid foundation, when you have no assurance, confidence in who you are in the family, your identity, that it's rock-solid, man, we are a mess, aren't we? Constantly looking for validation from other people. Checking compulsively how many people liked or responded or even looking, why didn't this person like or respond? Maybe that's social media is not your thing, but you're looking for the accolades. You're looking for somebody to pat you on the back. You're looking to make progress always up and to the right, whatever it happens to be. And those can be good things, but they can also be rooted in a real insecurity where it's like, I'm not enough. And so I got to continually sort of prove I don't know if you've seen this show. I, it's, it's been out for a few years. We watched a couple episodes recently in the, the dole of summer. It's like, I'm not going outside. It's ridiculous out, right? And so we, we turned this show on, The Good Place. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, the main character, Kristen Bell, name is Eleanor in the show. Uh, it's a, this fictitious, obviously, account of she dies and she gets welcomed into heaven, all right? And it's this amazing, beautiful utopia. Um, and then it's very obvious within the first episodes. I'm not really giving any, anything away, and I don't know how it all plays out. But within the first couple episodes, it is revealed they made a mistake. She's not supposed to be there, all right? Uh, and so what triggers for her, talking about some insecurity, she's like, I got to start acting like a virtuous person. I got to try and fit in with all these amazing people, all right? And talking about just a workspace, right? It's been kind of a fascinating thing so far. That's a sort of insecurity. I don't want to get kicked out. That is the older brother. Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, which I can't commend to you enough, says this. The elder brother is not losing the father's love. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. He's been entreated. He's been invited in. If, like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and to be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example and even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. The younger brother took matters into his own hands. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just go be me. I'm gonna do that. Kind of like, I'm gonna make my life what I want it to be, kind of a salvation through that. But the older brother is just as guilty trying to serve as his own savior and Lord by being incredibly dutiful, incredibly obedient. But if you could get past the external behavior, you would see a heart that is very, very far from God, very alienated from God, and very much like his younger brother that he despises. And so this parable, what is it ultimately showing us? As we even seek to know God, what does it look like to recover our confession? It is communicating something, not just highlighting the lostness of the younger brother, like who do you see yourself as in the story, or the older brother, but it's, it's showcasing for us something really, really important. And I read one of them earlier, the parable of the lost sheep. You've got the hundred and the one runs off and he leaves the 99 to go after the one. 
And then the very next parable that Jesus tells, the second in Luke 15, is a story of a woman who loses a coin. She's got these 10 coins. She loses one. She's scouring the house trying to find it, and she rejoices when she finds it. Um, she didn't have an app that she could ping it, and it beeped for her, right? Like she actually scoured the house, and she's looking for it. And in both cases, when something is lost, the shepherd runs after the sheep, or the woman searches high and low for the coin. And so you sort of expect that by the time you get to the, the parable of the prodigal son, that it might be something similar. Who's going to go out looking but nobody does. Now the father runs out, but it's showcasing for us that, and as Jesus is talking to an audience that's filled with religious leaders, he's trying to showcase for them a good older brother would have done what? A good older brother would have left home and went after his brother, would have pursued him, would have sought him. There's a teaching by Tim Keller that we show at our partnership class, and in the, this moment he says, you know, it's so sad, the younger brother here doesn't have a good older brother. And then he sort of looks into the camera and he's like, but we do. And every time I'm like, chills, like every single time. I've seen it like a hundred times, right? I'm just like, oh, this is amazing. Play that again, right? Like we do. How amazing is that? That is what this is showcasing for us. It was meant to be this emptiness. There's a cliffhanger thing. We don't know if the brother goes in to the party or not to, to celebrate. And he's showcasing to the religious people, listen, there's a good older brother. And Jesus said, I've come on the scene to be that good older brother. And this is what we need to see in this. If we're going to recover our confession, we need to see it's all about Jesus. The costliness then of our confession, the costliness of this confession of the gospel of the good news. Forgiveness, listen, it's never free. There are people that have misinterpreted this passage down through the years. And they use it in this sort of liberal, watered-down theological sense of, hey, listen, the father welcomes the son. And there's no atonement. There's no sacrifice. It's just... God can just forgive everybody. That's not what it's communicating. Forgiveness always costs, right? Somebody busts something, they drop your phone on the ground, and like if you say, hey, don't worry about it, you still gotta pay to get it fixed. It always costs. They're gonna pay or you're gonna pay. There's always a debt to be paid. And so what we see in this as the father goes out, he says these very true words, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. Now think about it for a moment. The older brother, from a purely like non-gospel perspective, all right, hang with me in this, all right, absolutely has a right to be ticked off because guess what? Everything that the father did, the shoes, the robe, the ring, the fattened calf, the epic party, all the wine, all the food, all of that, guess what? Where was that coming from? It was coming from the family reserve of income that was slowly dwindling. He was going to get less in his inheritance now because the younger son, it was being spent on him. Now, a good older brother would have welcomed that, would have said, that is okay, but this younger brother is not having it, that it costs him. And so what we see here, what Jesus is communicating, is you and I have a good older brother that was willing to pay the ultimate cost so that you could be invited into the feast, that you could have an inheritance, regardless of all the ways that you've messed up and I've messed up and the recklessness and the disregard for God and wanting the father's stuff without a relationship with the father, all of that. He says, I am willing to step in and to pay. Keller again in the prodigal God says it this way. The point of the parable is that forgiveness always involves a price. Someone has to pay. There was no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. And our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. It always costs. And there on the cross was Jesus, stripped naked of his robe and dignity so that you and I, that we could be clothed with the dignity and standing that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought into God's family freely by grace. There, Jesus drank the cup of eternal justice so that we might have the cup of the Father's joy. 
There was no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother, Jesus. We love Jesus, right? This is what we want more people to know. We want more people to know this, that there is a good elder brother who is willing to leave everything. It's Galatians 4. Paul would write this, reminding people that were caught up in religious behavior, thinking you had to still hold to the Jewish law in order to be right. Yeah, we like Jesus, but you make sure you add a little bit to it. No, 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 he says. When the fullness of time had come, think about the set nature of our God, his pursuit of us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to free us so we might receive not just, okay, fine, you can come in, as adoption, as sons brought into the family. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, intimacy, relationship, welcome. This is your dad and he cares for you. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, guess what? Then an heir through God. You get it all because of Jesus. You get it all because of him being the elder brother. So I'll close with this as we come back to this as a church. What is our, what is our calling? To be a faithful presence. It is difficult. It is hard. There's a darkness. Think about it. There's, there's, there's these places of absence in the world, devoid of right worship of God, people just living for the temporal. If you want, you know, we just preach through Ecclesiastes, man. Like that just showcases for us over and over again how fleeting this stuff is, but how often we get caught up. If I just have more of the things in this world, right, kind of under the sun, things will be okay. But there's an absence, there's a void, and we get to be a faithful presence showcasing the wonder, the glory of this confession of the gospel, and that's our calling as a church. So I encourage you to be thinking through this. One of the things, that if you look on many of the seats this morning, would you do me a favor? There's these little invite cards, and that's certainly for you to know and be aware of this series, but I would encourage you, if you got a pen, you can, can do this, but who comes to mind that you just know, man, there is a void, there's an absence and if you would, this week, we're going to unpack this, give some practical things throughout the rest of the series, but I would encourage you, I want you to take one of those. And yeah, you could use it to invite the person, but even this week, keep it on your desk, put it on your fridge, whatever you want to, want to do. But as you see it, to be mindful of, God, who is this person you want me to pursue? Who is it that you want me to step in? I'm not there to save them, I'm not their savior, but I get to point them to Jesus. Something that might just sort of trigger your memory. And what we have to offer them is not, we've got it all figured out. We have to offer them what Jesus has done. I'll close with this. Mark Sayers in his book, Disappearing Church, says this. Kind of there's this mentality, right? We just want the solution, right? Just give it to us. He says, all we need to do is discover the killer app and the discomfort that we feel, the obstacles we face will disappear. We just need that program, that new expression of church shape, the silver bullet to defeat secularism. But what if there's no killer app? What if the answer is what it has always been? The path of walking in Jesus' footsteps, of following the traditions and the teachings of the apostles. What if the answer to our culture's challenges is still the gospel? We have an elder brother who has sacrificed it all so we could be brought in. There is a feast that we get to partake in here in a moment as a, just a, an appetizer towards what awaits us ultimately. How the scriptures speak of the end of time, this reunion of heaven and earth joined together. And there's an epic feast, and you will hear it from far away. And there's dancing, and there's good food, and wine, and relationship, and a restoration of all things. And so I want to give us a moment here to respond and encourage you. What is it that you need to repent of?
Maybe it's irreligious younger brother things in your life. Repent of that, to turn, to run to the Father and know that he embraces you and that he welcomes you back in. And the same as an older brother, to repent of the ways that you've been self-righteous, thinking it's up to you, that you've been insecure in your relationship with God, or maybe just wanting the Father's things and not a relationship with the Father, to repent of that. And to know that he too entreats you, he welcomes you in. If you doubt that, you have to look no further than the cross of Jesus to see what God was willing to do in order to get you back, younger brothers and older brothers alike. And that we would rejoice. We're going to rejoice through song, through giving, through communion. I'll explain more of that in a moment. We're going to rejoice together. And as you take time just to pray even now, just rejoice. Thank God for this reality. If you don't know this today, may it be the day that you repent for the first time and turn to him and we get to celebrate together. Let somebody know that you've trusted in Christ. And I would encourage us in this, let's not lose this idea of recover. Let's not lose the gospel. It's all that we have. We go out into the world and let's recover this sense of mission and this urgency. Let's recover our calling to be a faithful presence in the absences of the world. As God has showcased his love by sending his son, we now as the church are sent people on this mission, not to save anybody, but to point people to the one who can, which is Jesus. We do that in love, to love God and to love our neighbor. That's what it looks like to be the church. So let me pray for us and give us a moment to respond and then we'll continue in our service. Father, thank you the ways you so lavishly showcase your love to us, that you would give us your son, Jesus. Thank you for your willingness to be that elder brother, to literally be stripped naked so that we might be clothed in your righteousness, to give up everything so that we might be brought into the family, so we might enjoy this feast. And so we thank you for that. And Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would be at work doing your beautiful work of convicting us of sin in both irreligious and religious ways. Um, that we get lost. And so bring that conviction, but then apply that gospel comfort that we might rejoice in who we are in you. We give you praise for that reality. God, may we recover our sense of who we are as the church, that we wouldn't live for ourselves, but we live, God, for your glory and for the good of other people. And in doing that, that we might experience just a great joy that you've created us for. So hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.